This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. your host with the most, Tiny Tim. Today is fabulous Football Friday, December 8th at Studio 15. On this day in history, Beethoven, his first musical premiered. Um, 1941, the United States declared war on Japan one day after Pearl Harbor. Um, Last year on this day, we lost uh, a great man in John Glenn, who was a senator and an astronaut. Um, 1978, I remember this movie scarring me and I, (laughs) the deer hunter came out and that was kind of the start of De Niro and Christopher Walken. And that was a award-winning film, but it was, it was tough back then. It was also the birthday of a very famous poet you may have heard, Jim Morrison. Um, and now it is time for W. Word of the day. This is Johnny Evison with the Bystander Podcast Word of the Day. Today's word is Luddite. It's a noun. A member of any of the bands of English workers who destroyed machinery, especially in cotton and woolen mills, that they believed was threatening their jobs. I am a Luddite as well. Yes. Also kind of generally just used to characterize somebody who has an aversion to technology. My guest today is John Comerford, writer and movie producer, head of Paradigm Studios, has a new movie coming out shortly called Wallflower. How are you doing today, John? I'm great. It's great to be here with you. Hey, thanks so much for taking the trek over here to the studio. Um, let's get started um, talking about what, what you do. And I know you've done about five projects so mm. far. Hmm. And uh, having the talk over here, I think you're a grounded artist with a, a huge vision. And I'm not so familiar with your earlier work, but I, I'd like to know more about it. What got you started on this path? Well, I grew up in uh, New York City during the 1970s, and cable television came into my household. We were actually one of the first households in America to have cable TV, Manhattan cable TV, in, uh, I don't know, sometime in the mid-70s. But up until that point, it was really, for visual media, it was all about film. And, uh, you know, I had a a subway token, and that was my ticket to the world in New York. And uh, I saw everything. I saw commercial film, art film, you know, I didn't uh, um, make any difference there or 
assign any uh, meaning to one or the other, whether it was the popcorn or, you know, the newspaper critique. You just like the entertainment. Oh, yeah. The stories, you know, and the visions um, and a way to get uh, out of the, the hustle and bustle and, uh, you know, transgress beyond sort of my life, you know, my school worries, family, etc. And uh, it's kind of an escape. And I think for all New Yorkers, particularly during that time, because it's really tumultuous in New York, um, it was a needed one. Yeah. What kind of things were going on in the 70s that that had you worried in New York? Well, the city was broke. Um, it was bankrupt. Abe Beam um, was the mayor during the mid-70s and um, needed a loan from the federal government to cover payroll for everyone in the city. And uh, I think Gerald Ford's response was, um, New York dropped dead, which they, was wow. the headline uh, uh, in the Daily News the day after uh, he was quoted as saying that. So there's an interesting film that I actually use as part of my uh, teaching regimen or have at uh, Seattle University called Dog Day Afternoon. And uh, Sidney Lumet, the director, um, to sort of platform you for what was going on sociologically, politically, and economically at that time for the character that Al Pacino plays, who is a a bank robber. Um, The first five minutes of the film is really just documentary footage of New York at that period of time. And he sets the stage for the desperation of this character by showing you what New York looked like. Um, it's an amazing opening for a film. And given our sort of, you know, short attention spans today and the rapidity of our image structures, um, it's really refreshing to see sort of uh, an overture, a visual overture in a film that gets you sort of, uh, you know, a lot of information and an emotional platform for what you're about to experience, the story of this uh, bank robbery that uh, goes awry. Why do you think New York became the hub of TV and movies and production? I think it's really about the um, the concentration of people, of culture, of um, finance. So diversified in New York. Yeah, it's, it's very different, you know, particularly as a movie and media town um, than Los Angeles is because of that um, overall diversity and it's um, proximity to Europe, sort of the implications of being, you know, the business center point of the world. Um, a lot of different elements. It's a real confluence. I mean, L.A. has that culturally also to a degree, but the movie business is so dominant in L.A. So you think it correlates because the financial district is in New York and the diversity of people and the density of people really has launched that as movie central? Yeah, trade and commerce, you know, literally, you know, what has been going on in uh, port cities, you know, for for millennia, Um, the trading of um, goods, services, ideas, culture, um, and its proximity, you know, to the old world, per se, you know. Um, I mean, I felt growing up there that it, uh, it had, um, you know, more than I could ever hope to experience in a lifetime to offer, um, which is, you know, it's a nice feeling. It's a little overwhelming too, but, uh, yeah, um, I was driven West though. I mean, I ended up at the university of Colorado at Boulder where I studied with a, um, abstract filmmaker, great experimental filmmaker, Stan Brackage, one of the greats. And uh, Stan opened the world of uh, cinema to me. 
I mean, I'd seen a lot of movies up until that point, but I didn't understand the power of uh, cinema until um, Stan showed us a documentary made by a filmmaker uh, who was very close to Adolf Hitler, Lenny Riefenstahl. And she um, created a documentary called Triumph of the Will. Um, very long piece, uh, pure propaganda at its highest form. And uh, I was about two reels into that film in the screening, and I was beginning to get physically ill from literally watching SS officers hand young girls flowers in the street. This was the second or third time we'd seen this in this uh, documentary. And I left to use the restroom, and as I was coming back into the theater, like I really was hit, almost like a wind blew through a corridor that was closed doors, stopped me in my tracks, and I thought, this thing, motion pictures, is so much more powerful than I'd ever suspected. And I went on to learn about the importance of that documentary to, you know, um, the British War Cabinet because they smuggled a copy of it out from Germany in the 30s to Britain. And the moment um, the War Cabinet saw that film, they began rearming immediately. It's an aha moment once you see that, yeah? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's... Um, incredibly powerful you know why, why do you think colorado is so much like seattle this is a little off the topic but I, I notice a lot of people are transplants from colorado here in mm -hmm. seattle and vice versa they're they're kind of similar and i think it's idea wise common commonalities being that there is a good vision for progressive and forward thinking in both those states and, and cities boulder and seattle what what are your takeaways from Colorado and living here in Seattle now? Well, my journey like pushing west from you know New York. When I got to Boulder, I mean, I was looking for a sign about where to go to college. I got accepted to about six different um, institutions, and the letter to Boulder acceptance letter was dated on my birthday. So I thought, okay, this is it. This is the sign. This is where I need to be. And uh, I got there. And Boulder, basically, to the east is Flat Plain, like Nebraska, and then the Rocky Mountains, as you know, uh, evidenced by the, what they call the Flatirons, which are huge rocks that just jut out of the earth, are right there just to the west of Boulder. So to the east, it's flat, and to the west, the Rockies just begin out of the plain. And um, that dramatic, you know, that drama. The landscape. Yeah. Is, um, is powerful stuff. It's powerful uh, medicine. It's powerful visually, um, psychologically. And um, it's basically leads you into the unknown, the drama of what the mountains represent, you know, the difficulty of being there, but the majesty of being there. And, uh, you know, after a lot of work and effort, what you achieve when you reach, you know, mountaintops. Um, I think this area has the same, except here we have the sea too, which is another dynamic reality, um, natural phenomenon that uh, has drawn you know wildlife and and human culture here for you know thousands and thousands of years. The Salish Sea area—it's an inland ocean basically—and um, that combined with mountains, you know, is one of the reasons that I'm here. Do you go hiking much or long walks or? 
yeah, I'm I'm all about, you know, getting out into nature above and beyond the intellectual, you know, and uh, cultural pursuits that I'm involved in, you know, nose to the grindstone, make things happen. Um, dreams and visions, you know, being in the cave part of it. Um, have to get out into it and, uh, you know, rejuvenate, recharge and um, seek for inspiration and agreement, really, you know. For ideas and dreams. After college, how long was it before you started working on your first project? Well, I came out here and what was happening when I left uh, CU was um, electronic editing with the Avid had just appeared. And I was probably one of the last classes at CU to uh, edit film by hand, cut and paste physical film, 16 millimeter in this case. And uh, I got to Seattle and I was um, in a meeting with someone about a um, potential job, and uh, they wheeled in this, um, you know, probably 200-pound machine that was about the size of maybe R2-D2, and they said, this is an Avid, and this is the future of the business. And I'm like, well, it's a computer, but what does it do? And they're like, well, it's a non-linear editor. And I thought, wow, okay, I'd love to see this work. And they demoed it for me, and I knew after that demonstration, this is the future. So I got involved in boutique editing for a long time, maybe five or six years at Paradigm Studio. What is boutique? Boutique editing is basically the means of um, editorial and production very rapidly after Avid was uh, introduced became available to anybody who had uh, a small amount to invest. I mean, now literally you can do it on your laptop. Um, with software that's virtually free. But back then, um, you know, ten dollars to $20,000 would get you an editing system that would allow you to edit in a nonlinear fashion. And that was a game changer for the industry because um, you were no longer cutting and pasting film. You were working with tape at that point. And um, the tape machines, uh, you know, could um, basically put your program up and you could make uh, unlimited amounts of change to programs based upon, uh, you know, computer manipulations. And that changed the changed the industry forever. And then Star Wars came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, Star Wars was before that, but, you know. Oh, really? It, yeah. But um, from a director's standpoint and also from a producer's standpoint, that change uh, meant that the, uh, you know, the idea of locked picture, which is a term we use in cinema, when um, the uh, – picture elements, not necessarily the credits, but the picture, the photography elements and the principal editing is completed on a film. That used to mean cutting physical negative. And once that physical negative was cut, it was total commitment. You could not recut that negative. That was it. If you wanted to re-edit the film, um, there was no way to change the duration of scenes that you had cut from negative unless you reshot the movie. And now... You know, unlimited changes, any way, shape, or form, virtually instantaneously. So um, storytelling, you know, was really affected by that. So what was the first movie that you actually completed from start to finish at Paradigm? Well, I got a call from um, an old friend of mine from college, um, and we'd experienced a lot of uh, touring music with The Grateful Dead. And we thought, wow, we met people that were just unreal in terms of characters and our adventures, especially given where we came from, which was much more sort of a, you know, um, how can I put it, austere and a little bit more, you know, um, repressed and conservative world. Um, 
This was just like joining the circus. Yeah, I remember those days, people traveling and just following the dead. Yeah. Um, my story was the dead came to Seattle Center, and they played, I think, three days on the weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. I was there. And I lived in Belltown at the time, and I was just hanging out. I didn't have a ticket. Mm -hmm. But what was so exciting, because I wasn't really familiar with their music, was the subculture where people were basically just hammering their car together with nails and tape and stuff and going from city to city to city just to be in that vibe. And I think uh, that's where I got my first food poisoning. By, oh, man. By yeah, I got to watch out for those grilled cheeses. It was a bean burrito out of the back of a VW oh. van that I bought to try to support this guy to get gas to the next show. And it's good going down, and it was horrible for <laughs> the next three, four days. Yeah. You got any dead stories that you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I, I saw probably 200 shows, and uh, it never got uh, boring for me. And it's amazing how after, you know, it ended, at least in the form, you know, with Jerry Garcia in 1995 after he passed, because it's, it's still out there. The songs, you know, will continue on through time, um, regardless of the, the, the messenger, you know. Who is John Mayer now, right? Right. Yeah, who I just saw at um, the uh, Hollywood Bowl. It, it was fantastic, sold out, just amazing. Hollywood um, Bowl, that's where uh, River Phoenix overdosed? Is that correct? I don't know. I think that was the Viper Room, maybe. Oh, that's right. Yeah. You know. And that was owned by Johnny Depp? Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. one of the owners. But um, the uh, yeah, back to Dead Stories, you know, it's a really good connection with Wallflower because it's one of the reasons I was attracted to the Wallflower script because Wallflower is a film that uses um, – and that's not the right word. It um, taps into um, the group and cultural mindset and activity of people in the rave scene. And they're connected by um, a lot of things that were very similar to the world that I came up in with the Grateful Dead. There are people involved in the rave scene who are there um, basically as a survival strategy to bring joy into their lives because they've come from really difficult background situations. Kids have run away um, for good reason. And um, that was the dead. Also, people who were there um, to experience and cultivate their creativity and their art and to find, you know, self through this process of communal experience of music. You know, that was the dead to a great extent. Um, electronic music is different in the sense you're not dealing with, you know, uh, trained musicians. It's producer driven to a great degree. Um, and it's electronic. But the spirit and the feeling being around those young people and watching that actually really happen 10 years. I mean, Jerry died in 95, but 10 years on to when Wallflower is set in 2006, watching that culture erupt in society um, was like a next step in terms of how, you know, people who were wanting to experience adventure, joy, and uh, letting go in a way that was really unusual, you know, um, visually, psychologically, chemically, you know. Yeah, the endorphins are clicking. It's a different type of utopia for people that had ran away from poor situations or trying to find themselves and they're lost and then they find acceptance through the raves and uh, you back then 
in that type of culture, and I don't know if this culture still exists, it, w- it was a positive thing, you know, that was kind of transcended through drug use as well. But it became this inclusiveness. Um, it's a scene for a lot of people that were loners and uh, misfits and people that have just not found themselves or were trying to find themselves and were works in progress. They kind of flocked to the raves. Uh, I think we need to start talking about Wallflower. I was going to try to bring it up slowly here, but um, Wallflower is your new movie. It's uh, not a documentary, correct? Correct. It's more of a narrative um, on a real-life situation. Um, 2006, I had just moved out of Belltown and moved to Kentucky for a short period of time. So I wasn't here when this story happened. And I kind of want to set the scene here. There was... um, a huge rave at Capitol Hill Art Center, and ironically, it was uh, had an undead theme. Correct. Mm-hmm. And um, the rave the rave went on at the Capitol Heart Capitol Hill Art Center. Um, and the shack. Then, yep. Yeah, and then um, there was a party afterwards, and the kids went to this party, and it was probably the second biggest massacre in Seattle history next to the one in uh, Chinatown when I was 16. Mm. There was 13 people killed in Chinatown. But that was definitely gang-related. And there's been a lot of mass shootings lately. Mm. And I, I can kind of just pick them off in my head. This Wallflower movie highlights this uh, Capitol Hill massacre after that rave. But I remember... Shortly after that, the first one that I, after the Chinatown, the one that I remember pretty close is the Racer Cafe one, Hmm. where the guy was depressed and shot some people out there. And then I think it was Roger Mountford that went to the coffee shop and shot the police in the head. And uh, now it seems like every time I look at my news feed, turn on the TV, or pick up the paper, there is there is some mass shooting and we've had just had a mass shooting in, in Las Vegas, you know, but I think there was some ridiculous amount of killings since then. Hmm. I mean, in the thousands, tell people what this movie means to you and how you saw, um, the vision of making this movie. I was, um, approached by the writer director, Jager Gravening, um, back in uh, around 2010, after um, teaching a professional development course at Artist Trust on Capitol Hill, he was one of the uh, students in the class, and he had spoke to an attorney, Lance Rosen, who I work with on a regular basis, entertainment attorney, about um, getting his uh, film idea made. At that point, he had um, a uh, first draft of a script. And Lance said, well, I know a producer you should talk to, given your subject matter and um, your connection to the event. Now, Um, he was at the rave, correct? He was invited to the rave. He did not go. and Did not go to the party. If he had, um, he would have been, because he knew people in the house, the blue house, um, he most likely would have been invited to that after party. And the Blue House is a house um, on Capitol Hill on Republican Street, just for reference. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jager basically 
had me for coffee at the Ugly Mug, this little coffee shop over in uh, the U District. And uh, he said, I've got this film. I knew two people who uh, lost their lives in the shooting. I know a couple of um, the survivors have a relationship with them. And uh, that was very important for me as a producer because I had to work with uh, an artist at that point, a writer, because we're not thinking about directing, you know, while we're in script form, we're thinking about writing, you know, note to uh, filmmakers out there. Um, it all begins with the script. And some people would say ends with the script too. But, uh, you know, my usual thing is if you have, you know, my attention and I feel like there's something compelling and you have a story to tell that you're connected to in a way that's um, undeniable from my perspective as a producer, meaning you have an emotional connection and a factual connection um, to what you're writing. You know, write what you know, is sort of the first tenet of writing. Um, then you have my attention. So I read the draft and I could see his talent. And what it means for an independent producer, when you find that, um, you know, a diamond in the rough at that point, is uh, years of work and commitment just to get the material creatively to a point or a state of readiness where you begin to um, raise money to make the film. Um, so that's a long creative commitment. And fortunately, as a creative producer, I pride myself on uh, developing motion picture scripts with writers and writer directors. And that is a process and there has to be good creative chemistry. So we ended up having good creative chemistry. Um, in the process of developing the work. So he had an initial idea, Jagger had an initial idea and then knocked it out with a couple writers, including yourself? Yeah, I wouldn't say um, I'm not credited as a writer, nor should I be. I am credited with a screen story, which is a particular type of credit that applies to um, a story that um, basically covers a uh, true life situation like this where there is already a, a narrative that exists because it's based on um, you know true life events um, so none of the characters in this um, story and this is very intentional in the way it was developed and conceived by Jaeger are you know close to one for one representations of people he knew they're all really composites they're pieces you know, facets of people reassembled for dramatic purposes. And one of the th great things about working outside of the documentary construct and using, you know, the fictional narrative is that you, you know, obtain a, um, a bit of a, a poetic license. And that license really gives you an opportunity to um, more conveniently access emotional truth in a way that may be deeper and more satisfying for both the audience and the artist. So, um, you know, like with The Hurt Locker, for example, it's a really good way um, to tell stories if you have that, you know, underlying connection to the event with regard to the storyteller, and, and Jager did. So uh, this was um, 2006 when this happened? Yeah. Is that correct? And the con construct of the story was that they went to the rave this uh murderer um i don't even want to use use his name yeah don't um went to the rave he was a bit of a loner he was a twin he went back to the capitol hill house the blue house on republican 
And at one point, he went back out to his truck and gathered a pistol grip shotgun, um, another pistol, went up to the uh, steps there. This is even hard for me to even talk about. Shot, shot the people on the steps, went into the house, screamed something to the extent there's enough for everybody here, and started shooting up the house. He had over 300 rounds of ammunition. After he had killed seven people, he took his own life. When the police came, and I listened to the police tapes last night, and they mm. were just frightening. There was a machete, a baseball bat, more guns and ammunition in this truck. This was completely premeditated murder on people that he had basically just met, but that's kind of up to discussion that perhaps he stalked these people and picked them out for a certain reason. But the movie is kind of going in a, a lot of different directions. One being the empathy of the killer. That, And this is something I talk about a lot with people and on this podcast, that we have to look at mental illness and depression a different way. There is so many people on the streets of Seattle that are homeless that have mental disease, and it continues to get worse and worse and worse. And then there's a there's little help for them if they don't seek it out themselves, and then they start self-medicating, and that complicates the whole brain pattern. What I know about this movie is, like, you're trying to show some empathy for the killer, but you're also trying to not highlight him in any positive way, but to give credit to the positivity of, of these people that were trying to find themselves early in life. I mean, one of the victims was 14 years of age, and I think the oldest was 32. Um, these guys are all inspiring artists, um, people trying to find themselves, and then this guy comes in and does this horrible, horrible thing. Can you talk a little bit about how the characters, the survivors and such, how that story was told and what you were trying to accomplish in showing this? Because from my understanding, the film kind of works backwards. You have the massacre at the beginning of the film, and then you go back to and see what led up to that. And if I'm getting any of these wrong, because I've yet to see the movie, it comes out December 28th. And I'm going to be first one in line there for it. Um, you can correct me. But tell me a little bit about the purpose of the character writing. So there's a couple things um, before I uh, stem into that that I um, want to just quickly uh, touch on, you know, given your description of um, the approach to the film, you know, as, as you know it from what you've, you've picked up. I think it's important, you know, for me to relate my personal process in the storytelling part of this, which for me, primarily in terms of creative input, was the script development. Um, I in no way on a personal level empathize with this murderer. Um, we work closely with uh, Dr. Richard Adler, who is a forensic psychiatrist and co-producer on the film who literally assembles the narratives of people involved in mass shootings. Now, wasn't, uh, sorry to interrupt, but wasn't there like a, 
a panel or something that looked into the mental illness of this crime? Yeah, there was a panel report that was created by um, a uh, professor from University of Chicago. And that's almost, there's a lot of information behind that. That's almost another podcast. But he was called in by the uh, then police chief, Gil Kurlikowski, to create a panel report on this um, crime because there was no one to be charged because the murderer had taken his own life but they still felt like they needed to cover details related to the crime and make those details public. Um, so there was a panel report, but working with Dr. Adler on this, um, I mean, the, the intense uh, anger and, um, you know, how can I put it? Being disgusted with the behavior and the criminal act, the horrific criminal act that happened um, that day is something that never leaves me. It's always part of how I feel. Um, and for that reason, and I'll never forget the meeting when we made this decision, we literally you know, took the name of the murder out of the film, out of the promotional materials as we you know, deliver them to people. And it's, it's up to you know, news people to use the name or not, that's their purview, but we don't get involved in things that lead to copycatting, which is a term that Dr. Adler introduced to us, um, because we know a lot about how um, people reach for immortality in the process of committing these heinous crimes. And uh, we're not gonna be part of that, and we aren't. Um, at the same time, and I'm not the director and writer. I mean, if, if Jager was here, he would have, um, I'm sure, plenty to say on this. But from my perspective as the producer, um, we've got to show, you know, not tell. We need to show you in this film um, what the conditions were like um, before uh, the event erupted, both the conditions for the murderer and the conditions for the um survivors and Jager and our film unit have done an outstanding job with the resources available to us um, of showing the audience what the conditions were that led up to this event and allow the audience and this is probably the most important element um, to come to their own conclusions about the film um, and about what they witness you know, what we show them. Um, and that's the job of the, of the film unit, you know, and uh, they did a, you know, beyond remarkable job. The talent is just exquisite. Yeah. Um, David Call is, plays the murderer and he's, he's a kid from Skyline and he, he's an up and coming actor for sure. And I think he's got quite a few credits under his belt already. Yeah. David's out there. He, um, I remember him coming up from school and getting a little pub in the neighborhood and stuff. And uh, we, I used to have a guilty pleasure with my wife. Um, we used to watch Gossip Girl <laughs> and he was on there. Uh, and uh, it's looking back at that, you know, being this atypical model looking guy and then coming into what he looks like in this movie. Wow. Wow. Kids got chops for sure. Yeah, Jager um, was really excited when we met with David Call over at a um, um, a tap room over in West Seattle, and I'll never forget um, David coming into that meeting because as a 
screenwriter or working with a producer, you know, on development of a screenplay, we're working towards a really simple and uh, brief but important moment with an actor because part of a screenwriter's job is simply to write great roles for actors. It's what they're doing, really. And David sat down with us and he slapped the script down on the table and uh, put his finger on the uh, title page and he said, this is a great fucking script. And we worked for two years to get to the moment where our potential lead actor said that with that feeling and that emotion and that level of assurity and commitment about that material. Um, what that meant for him down the line was um, working with Jager in isolation from the rest of the cast to get um, that character right. He had his own trailer. Um, Jager gave instructions to the cast and to the crew not to interact with him. And he basically was isolated from the entire film uh, during the preparation process and uh, um, during the filming. And I'll never forget the last shot that was his final shot when he basically his job concluded. Um, I just ran up to him and I gave him this huge hug. And I became immediately available and emotional and recognizing him as a person with, you know, overwhelming joy at what he had gifted to us through this process of um, his performance. And, uh, yeah, I'll never forget that moment because it was a big release, you know. Is that a huge emotional toll for somebody to play a part like that, especially so close to home? Yeah, I think for – I mean, you know, I'm, I um, – I didn't work on uh, that level of development with character because, um, you know, I have duties elsewhere as a producer. But from what I've garnered from, you know, talking to Jager and then um, talking with David, you know, acting is doing, you know. Um, some actors are more intellectual than others, but it really is about doing. So for him, it's about experiencing and imagining himself into the depth of that character taking time to do that and, and feeling and then being required to be in the moment in front of the camera and the film unit, the crew, and then to inhabit that character, which is a falsity, you know, under the, the, uh, the or to create, I should say, emotional truth under the falsity of that moment. Um, and to be utterly immersed in that, you know, um, day in, day out through the production process. So... That's huge commitment, you know, because it, um, it uh, no doubt it tears you up. Let's talk a little bit about these characters that you had. Um, about the, let's start with the illustrator. Mm. Uh, what was that story? So um, we, we really felt like it was important given the background of um, a lot of the different people at the house who were independent artists at the Blue House who were, um, you know, uh, putting their uh, creativity out into the world and, um, you know, nonstop sort of, you know, the commitment with your day job combined with your creative life and um, wanting to advance that as a, you know, complete and perf total profession and do what you love, you know, and to be paid to create. And a lot of these young artists were involved in making that transition or trying to transition, you know. Um, Strobe Rainbow um, our uh, female uh, lead comes out of that. She's a budding illustrator in the film and has dreams of um, alternative comic and graphic novel, you know, narrative. And so we wanted to represent that in the film. And we do um, through uh, some terrific work done by uh, the art department, 
um, with sketches that she's working on in the film, which play a role um, in the movie. Um, but Anya Davidson is an actual illustrator from Chicago that we got turned on to through um, Fantagraphics in Georgetown, which is a world I didn't know a lot about. I'm really like more heavy on the music side than let's say the visual arts. Um, you know, the director and cinematographer, that's their visual artist, that's their world. I'm more about words and concepts as a creative person and, and, and music to a degree. Um, so I walk into Fantagraphics and I'm, I, enter this world, which is, you know, our director's world, Jagger's world too, of um, alternative comics and graphic novels. And uh, I'll never forget being in there in Georgetown and looking at all those shelves and sort of the totality of all the genius in this one, you know, 20 by 25 room sort of hits me at once. And I'm like, oh man, this is just, a, it's a universe, right? Of storytelling and possibilities and talent. And um, I'm like, where do I start? And so I talked to Larry Reed, you know, who's the manager at Fantagraphics, and he gave me a list of people to look at. I ran that list with Jager, as we do, you know, talk about um, choices. And Anya's name came up, and Anya had just published a graphic novel called Band for Life, B-A-N-D, Band for Life. And um, then the magic happened, which happens in the process of making, I think, any, you know, scaled creative endeavor, particularly filmmaking. Um Jigger went to Cinerama, and when he bought the ticket, um, the ticket uh, person was reading her graphic novel there behind the window. And so there's the sign. Yeah, stars aligned. Right. And um, called Anya, said, you know, here's what we're working on. We'd love to show you an early cut of the movie if you're open to it. And we need some illustrations for the credit sequence and beyond, um, you know, possible marketing, et cetera. And she said, great, send me the film. And then um, we got, you know, what I would call that sacred moment with David Call when he said, this is a great fucking script. We got that email from Anya who said, I am absolutely blown away by what you guys have done. And uh, I want to be a part of this in any way I can serve the film. And so let's talk. And that led to her creating custom illustrations of individual characters in the film, um, which are represented by actors in the movie. Um, Orko, uh, Noob Girl, uh, Shroom Fairy, one of my personal favorites, um, Strobe Rainbow. And um, yeah, she just, you know, has a language all her own. So did these illustrations come to life in the movie, like a dream sequence or at the rave? Or? No, they're used in the credit sequence because it's an extension of story. Um, I'm not going to give away the, the ending of the film, but um, the as with any you know strong film, I think, we use every frame virtually that we can to tell the story. Um, and that's one of the things about movies that sometimes the audience doesn't think about, literally every you know note of music during an end credit sequence or you know in our case um illustrations that you see of character along with principal credits are all really deliberate choices by um you know musicians in our case a visual artist who are helping to basically in our case with our film take you back into the world of literally the movie theater because our film is so immersive um the audience response so far has been, you know, people are astonished at the end of the film and they're breathless and they sort of refocus on the reality of being in the theater from being transported into the special world that we create in Wallflower. 
So does, do you take the audience into the rave and into the minds of the artist? I know one of the victims, I think it was Justin Schwartz. That, well, he was a DJ, correct? Mm. And what were some of the other kids at the rave? What, what kind of things were they doing that was inspiring and positive and joyful? Well, like, you know, it's a, I'm thinking immediately just flashed on my um, days with the Grateful Dead. You know, there's, there's this, you know, there's this pursuit of joy that's like, you know, unchecked where you're just in the joy of life. And um, I think in the Variety Review, which was um, terrific that Dennis Harvey did, um, really glowing about the film, um, you know, he mentioned the word hedonism, but I never viewed it that way. I always viewed it, you know, coming up in the scene where you're, uh, you know, taking psychedelic drugs involved with cannabis, you know, whatever your thing is in that world. And some for, for some people, it's just music, you know, it was not um, driven by, a, you know, a chemical regimen or agenda at all. Um, but that wanting, that desperation and artists are really connected to this, you know, to transcend um, you know, life as we know it, the reality of lightning and get up to a higher plane and to do that collectively, which to a degree cinema is about, but music in particular that involves dance, that involves physical movement rather than the passive experience of sitting in a movie theater. Um, that's sort of another level, that level of activity and that sort of place that we can all go together and experience, you know, the heights really of, you know, of joy and elation in this life in a communal way. Um, I mean, as a producer, I know it takes a lot of planning, a lot of work to create environments where that can happen. Um, and yes, it's addictive and yes, it's desirable. And yes, you want it to be safe. Um, and I think that's ultimately what the murderer was attracted to. There was, um, a tremendous, uh, joy de vivre and sense of life um just like a flame a heat and um he was attracted to that only there were things about his narrative his story and about um the way that he was put together his past experience in particular um having um one of his best friends having one of his best friends in um, Whitefish, Montana, um, take his own life and his parents' life. Wow. Years before the shooting in Seattle happened and how that community in Whitefish, you know, responded or didn't respond to that situation with regards to, you know, PTSD, which is, you know, absolutely real. And I've been you know, really close to it with a few of the people that um, work with the film who are survivors from the shooting. And um, it's a it's a really terrible thing. And to a degree, after making, you know, this film, being involved for five years in this world, I think a lot of the problems we have in this world are really from untreated trauma, trauma that's not being processed and maintained, you know, towards health. Um, in a positive direction, because in my experience, you know, people who've suffered those traumas and who are not, you know, um, moving towards healing and getting the attention they need um, are time bombs. 
Yeah, so he was kind of silent, depressed, loner, really, after after that happened, right? And then he moved to Seattle, and there was further disconnect, not having, you know, anybody here that he knew. And I'm sure he just brooded until he exploded. There's real, you know, information in our film, and Jager as the screenwriter and director and Mike Sullidum as our cinematographer um, really exquisitely examine the toxicities in this person, including, you know, his male toxicity, his view of women. Um, Wallflower is a clash of civilizations to a, a great degree because he comes from whitefish, um, young, uh, white, you know, rural male into an incredibly like kaleidoscopically diverse world of the rave and of Seattle. Capitol Hill. Capitol yeah. Hill, man, like full on in 2006, you know, I mean, there's, you know, social media is just beginning then. So words traveling faster, but not as fast as it does today. And things like raves at Shack are like real like ground zero like for what's happening in Seattle like that night that was it that was you know what was happening um and he comes into that world and um as you'll see when you experience the film you watch him move in and around that 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 world and clash with it psychically and perhaps spiritually you know because all of his how can i put it his value system that he comes from have different messages than the one he encounters and uh, trying to resolve those differences. um, Boy, our films in the middle of that in a psychological and spiritual way. Yeah. I read an apology letter to the, the artist that was in Montana. He had been busted before for shooting a moose in art 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 installation art installation and he did his his time and and paid his penance and they gave him all those guns back yeah that he used yeah and you see somebody that's brooding like that completely depressed rural montana versus best coast west coast completely inclusive scene going at speed of light you know you never know where the hip band was playing, you know, it could be Mother Love Bone, it could be Alice in Chains, it could be Soundgarden, Pearl Jam, Nirvana. All these things were happening in Seattle and you never know what was catching fire. So if there was a major rave, it was the place place to go. And that spawned so much other other things and introductions to people. And perhaps this guy just could not be inclusive with anyone because it's such a different scene out here in Seattle than it would be middle America. I know when I lived in Kentucky, um, I couldn't believe how red the state was, you know, and how everything was based upon religion. There was 13 different churches on a five mile drive to my job and how the churches worked within each other and they, that they only supported the people that there were in their congregation and a lot of these people never leave they never travel they never see you know a lesbian a gay person um they're segregated from different races they all have guns it's that's the norm 
know, um, I look at this situation being this guy was way in over his head and nobody saw him brooding and depressed and there was not a transition into some type of program or identification when he had that initial crime in Montana. What can we do to recognize mental illness and support these people as a common everyday person? I mean, we see it all the time. Um, you live in Queen Anne and I go downtown all the time and there's a great amount of mentally distressed people, people yelling at each other. I remember the guy with the samurai sword out Outside, um, what was that dive bar in second? Um, the turf, mm. where they, uh, where you could get a can of Old English. That was, <laughs> right. that was the only bar that you could get that. And that guy's out there wielding the, the samurai sword and, and screaming and yelling, and then the fire hoses were on him. And I remember walking down Belltown, and this was when it was more undeveloped and there was more vacant lots, and the crack was r- rampant. And there was people talking to themselves all the time. And now the landscape's changed, but I still see people talking to themselves all the time and that are just down, out, dysfunctional people. And I can count on seeing that person, you know, week in and week out with that distress. How does a common person help? And how do you think this film will help people when it comes to identifying mental illness and what we can do about it. Well, I'm really glad you brought that up. Um, the question in my mind is, what is it going to take for people to share their pain? Like, at what point are we ready to be vulnerable? Um, I'm a recovering alcoholic, so I'm steeped, you know, week in, week out. Um, month in, month out, year in, year out, you know, for 12 years in sharing um, my pain and listening to other people's difficulties in life. Um, You know, that process is really hard in a world that wants to um, advance in commerce, advance with technology, advance, advance, advance. You know, when is our moment of pause for reflection on what matters? You know, when people get hurt, like in this case, um, you know, what can we do? And I've been changed by making this film, as happens when you make films, when you're a filmmaker. It changes you. And one of the ways I've been changed is I'm very aware in social situations about outsiders now. I will see somebody at a party and I will seek out people on the edges of social situations and I'll engage them. And I'll just make sure I do that with one person at least, you know, and I'm a producer, so I'm constantly networking in social situations. And I'll make sure I contact and connect with that person in a way that's, you know, that's um, honest and engaging, hopefully, you know, if I'm in a good mood, you know, and uh, I feel capable of doing that. And I put that energy out there. And maybe they're a stranger and our film gets into these issues, you know, how, how much of yourself are you going to, you know, offer into the world and what is safe, you know, um, that's real too. But at the same time, um, you know, that community of whitefish and how they responded to those issues and what, you know, we call in, in the realm of uh, recovery, 
people who have difficulties with uh, drugs and alcohol af- often pull what we call a geographic where they literally just pick up and move to another place thinking that somehow that move will change them. That's their, their fresh problem. start. Right. Yeah. And um, it doesn't work unless you're addressing the deeper stuff. It just, it will fail. It worsens. Right. And so a person like this, you know, individual, the murderer who comes to Seattle and all of a sudden now is, you know, diluted into millions of people. Like what happens to him? What is the story, in other words, of these narrative of these people who are around us who are in distress? Like, you know, um, what is their pain about? And and we are, you know, for better or for worse, we're responsible for that um, until something changes and it's going to change positively or it's going to change negatively, you know? So my shoulder, you know, as a, as an artist and as a creative person, and definitely as a filmmaker is to work in collaboration with amazing group of people called the film unit, um, to put that shoulder behind it and to push. Um, and that's, um, that's what I do. How do you feel like, what direction are we moving when it comes to gun control and gun buying and the accessibility of getting guns in today's society? Yeah, we really um, have not entered into, in this film, you know, any of the uh, um, issues or elements or facts surrounding gun control. We're not interested in engaging that. The film is, you know, to a degree about um, gun violence. Um but it does not touch on gun control. We have no, you know, stated, you know, uh, message around that at all in relationship to our film. You just simply see the outcome of somebody who has access, you know, to guns um, who's not well. Um, You know, you see an outcome. But um, there's no doubt about the facts. You know, if you go into Wikipedia or you go online and you search, you know, this incident you mentioned where the art installation was, you know, shot up by the murderer and then um, his weapons were taken away and ultimately he was pled from a felony to a misdemeanor. And as a result of that, his weapons were returned to him by the police via his attorney. Um, And those were the same weapons that were used in commission of the crime on Capitol Hill. That's a fact. Yeah. So, you know, where we as you know, society interface with issues regarding mental health and um, access to weapons. Um, I think there's a lot of, you know, obvious things that we can do, obvious things. But we, you know, we'll have to, uh, in certain cases, in the same way, you know, I've, as a producer, fought to make this production happen. We've got to get in there and it's the work. It's the work that needs to be done, you know. Maybe it's the work of ages. I don't know. We'll see. Something's got to change. There's got to be a tipping point down the road because this stuff is happening all too often in all, all over the world. You know, um, what would you think the main message of the movie is? And I, I know there's a lot going on in here, and there, there's movable pieces in here. But yeah, my mind was ping ponging around or like I, I, a pinball machine. I, I could tell. P- Pachinko, yeah. Pachinko. <laughs> Japanese There's a good football. reference. Yeah. I used to um, have a pachinko machine. Oh, really? I loved yeah. it. So you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, I, you know, the, the principal message of this film for me 
as the producer and one I can, you know, message out into the world, I think, um, uh, clearly. And uh, to repeat is, um, you know, what's it going to take for any person, regardless of your station in life, your, your, your privilege, you know, the people you're surrounded with, friends, family, uh, work, you know, at our, at our really difficult times, our bottoms, whatever those are for people, like, how are we going to progress through that? And how are we going to um, elevate? How's that going to go for men, for women, in all different types of situations, the cards that were dealt and the cards that we play? How's that going to go? Our film is in the middle of watching very high and dramatic stakes with regards to how people um, survive and elevate, elevate, or in some cases just don't make it. And that's, that's part of, you know, that's the story. That's the human story. I, I cannot wait to see this film. Really can't. Um, tell people where they can see it when it's coming out. Well, we are right we'll get now. Get more info on it. Sure. We're right now um, in discussion um, with um, distribution, and um, we're beginning to formulate a plan about its release. Um, from a marketing perspective as a producer, there's um, two core audiences that we really need to reach with a film. One is uh, the EDM community, electronic dance music community, because this is very much a seismic event in their history that happened 10 years ago where they were targeted by someone um, who you know, set out to hurt them. And um, it involves their own. So they're an important uh, group that we have to connect with on this. So we'll be um, creating awareness for them and hopefully need to see based on you know, leaders, tastemakers in their community who have a chance to see the film ahead of time and uh, hopefully get something from it and message positively about what it, it brought them, uh, more insight and more meaning to who they are in their own personal journeys as part of the electronic dance music scene. Then there's um, the illustrator part of it. You know, Strobe Rainbow, our female lead, is uh, a budding, you know, underground illustrator. And that group of people is really important to us, too, also because of Anya Davidson, um, our brilliant illustrator uh, in the film, uh, who does the actual artwork in the end credit sequence. Um, I would love for her and perhaps our director to be able to travel to these, you know, sort of meccas of the image that exist in actually major cities and towns all over the U.S. have these comic stores. You know, like I said, I didn't know about this because I'm really a music person, but um, Fantagraphics would be one here in Seattle. Um, they're in Austin. They're in Miami. They're in Baltimore. They're all over. And so reaching out to those communities and saying, hey, this is a story about, you know, one of your own that ultimately um, uh, survives and, and, and moves on towards thriving, you know. Show um, it at Comic-Con. Hey, you know, that's a total possibility. And, and I'm not, you know, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> I'm now immediately thinking about who do I know, of course, being a producer. But, uh, but yeah, that's, that's, um, that's part of the, the core that we need to reach. And then above and beyond that, there's um, a more general audience, you know, that's interested in issues of the day, the topicality, um, the, you know, toxicity issues we deal with in the film, male-female relations, um, uh, the gun violence piece, of course, connects into events. So, you know, what is the, you know, 
I don't know, top line press. How's it going to be the film going to be reviewed and critiqued? And my job as producer is to reach that core audience first and foremost. I got to serve them with the film. And then what happens above and beyond that to a degree is depending upon how it's received is above and beyond my control. I would hope that it moves to a broader communities and it may, um, but my distributor is just coming in line now and they're the other big force beyond, you know, the film unit that's got to come in. And when we start talking with them, they help to guide the destiny of the film. Have you only shown it at a Seattle international film festival? That's the only public screening we've had were, um, the, uh, uh, World premiere at the Egyptian on Capitol Hill, which literally, you know, was dead center on a probably three mile radius for the story itself taking place and the film being produced, which is amazing. It's local as local can get. And then the second screening at the Uptown uh, Cinema at SIF, um, which was um, the full realization of the film for me, the second screening, because that Uptown Cinema has a, um, a screen that's larger than the Egyptian. It's got a more... Um, yeah, that was my go-to spot. Yeah, it's got a more up-to-date you know, sound system. And um, the technical, you put so much effort, we put so much effort into the technical um, expertise and beauty in the film, even though we're working with limited resources. And the, the film gets to stretch its legs like fully in an environment like Cinema One in the Uptown. And that's where the Variety reviewer, Dennis Harvey, saw the film for the second screening, the matinee. And uh, I'll never forget the moment where we were about ready to start the Q&A. And I looked over at senior programmer, um, Dustin Gaspar, who was there with the microphone. And I saw tears in his eyes when he handed me the mic. And as a filmmaker in a, in a room, even as a seasoned producer, I can judge the, the feeling in the room. But the moment I looked at Dustin, I realized the film had just its full impact. Its weight had hit this room, you know, and like I told you earlier, we have a mutual friend and he was shook to the core and he was the one that introduced me to this whole story and he couldn't talk about it. He just could not even explain why he was so shook at leaving it. And I know that variety review was absolutely outstanding. You you worked on the board at SIF for a while, right? Yeah, I was on the board of SIF for about uh, nine years. I served there. Yeah, that's a that's a great festival. Oh yeah, I mean SIF is, um, you know, not only because of its scale, its size, but um, you know the audience, the enthusiastic independent film audience that shows up year in year out and you know puts the money where their mouth is and really um, supports independent film in Seattle. I mean, it's my lifeblood. I mean, one of the things that I think, you know, if you'd be so kind to indulge me for a minute on. Oh, please. Yeah, as an independent producer that's important that I sort of feel like messaging all the time is um, if you're involved in, you know, making social justice or um, environmental justice, you know, documentaries, films like that. And in in our case with Wallflower, it's, you know, absolutely uh, a work of art in addition to having the social threads woven into it. But I, as the producer, feel connected to it um, as, um, you know, something that addresses social justice for me. And I think the audience may feel that too, certain members of the audience, particularly people involved in that field who see the film. Um, We're like public servants, except we don't have benefits, we have no pension, and we have to find our own salary. 
that's basically who we are. And that's okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it, but that's the work, right? That has mm-hmm. to occur to create these things. And the the misconception is the confusing sort of filmmaking from an independent standpoint with, um, you know, the business of Hollywood and the commercial reality, which is absolutely awesome. And when I see scale and resources with great storytelling and great, you know, film units behind it, I recognize it. I know it. I think it's the best use of your entertainment dollars possible, you know, for the, the $12 you just shelled out to see, you know, the new Blade Runner. You're like, wow, that was $12, you know. But what are you doing when you're supporting independent artists? You know, you're going, we, we go to these areas, no studio, no, you know, other medium has really approached this situation surrounding, you know, male toxicity and gun violence and these issues spot on like we have. And I felt it necessary as a producer when I read that first draft, I knew it was important. I said, this is, a, this is zeitgeist, this spirit of our time. There's something important here intuitively. And I, for me, that's commitment of years of my life to building you know, the creative team, developing the motion picture screenplay and raising the money and then creating the film itself. And now I'm on the sort of second half of my journey, which is distribution and marketing. But um, the rewards are, uh, are great when the impact with an audience for me as a producer is felt, you know, because a lot of people look at film, particularly independent film, as an intellectual exercise, but it's really all about emotion. And that's the first thing when I test a film, I tell an audience, I say, you don't have to say anything smart when we have the focus group. I just want to know what you feel. Yeah. How do you feel? We got to wrap this up here in a few minutes, but how do you feel about the, uh, the film movement out here on Bainbridge Island? There seems to be a, uh, a lot of small projects. Few actors live out here. Uh, there's a celluloid community that's always producing things. I don't know if you saw the film by the high school kids that uh, I think it was on Netflix recently. Um, How to live on a dollar a day. I haven't, but I will look that up and check it out. Um, you know, tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty cool project. That yeah, they did. yeah. I'll get some immediate gratification there tonight. Um, but. You know, the one thing I will say about Seattle filmmaking and Northwest filmmaking that's really important, and I think part of this is just my, you know, uh, my own sort of uh, scaled intensity that I have to maintain, you know, to advance things that, um, you know, are filled with emotional truth, which is often unwelcome in our world. Um, Critique, honest, thoughtful, constructive critique in the screenplay phase, in the film testing phase, it's incumbent upon us to take the risk, not only of creating something, but exposing it to community of creative people and to audiences as we develop work so that that input can come in and help to improve things. Because you do have to work in a bubble, of course, and have blinders on to a degree, being an artist, but, We've got to be fearless enough to get our work out there in, let's say, the SIFT catalyst, the screenplay um, table readings that are done there, where a screenplay is uh, read by actors, you know, free of charge to the writer and presented to a community. And then there is a uh, 
Q&A afterwards. I help lead those sometimes as a screenplay doctor, quote unquote, and lead a discussion with an audience about how they perceive that script. Um, work improves dramatically in ways that are absolutely they're unreachable by the artist because they have to be so focused. They can't let everything in. And that process of developing and looking for honest critique about things as they change, as things change, um, is so important to creating something that really has potency. Um, and it's tough. It's tough for the artist. I mean, I really feel, you know, for, you know, for Jager in every test screening, I think he attended like one or two, you know, I felt for him in that process when people were talking and I was encouraging them as the producer, you know, you have to be honest about your feelings, you know, here, even though the creative person who was involved in this is here, you know, it's Seattle we're we're very polite to a degree by nature, you know, but, um, you've got to let people know how you feel about, you know, what's happening or not happening for you. Um, in the work and that rigorous, you know, that vitality, that rigor that's involved with um, constructive critique, um, boy, does that make great work. And I mean, in, in New York and L.A. and, you know, other places where filmmaking has been central for a long time and uh, those cultures are really developed, like, I mean, that's just a given. But uh, I encourage everyone here to do that. And there are ways to do it. You know, there, there are structures and a process, whether it's film testing or it's um, screenplay readings um, with fictional narrative, you know, um, to do that. Documentaries, too. You can, you know, test screen and improve. Last question. What kind of soundtrack do you have on this movie? Wow. Soundtrack. Great local connection. Um, to uh, Christopher Crooker, who did a lot of the original music for the film, um, who um, Jager um, has known for years from Mount Vernon. Jager's from Mount Vernon. And Christopher also knew a lot of people at the Blue House. And he has developed uh, his own, you know, uh, production style of music and his own sound clips, you know, for years. And that's a big part of the underlying uh, voice of the movie. Um, which I love because it's more local. It's more sort of the homegrown threads that are woven into Wallflower. And then we also, you know, are fortunate to work with, uh, are there artists that you'll recognize there? Some are sort of um, uh, surprising and uh, unanticipated in the film. But the one cue that means so much to me because it was really hard fought and it happened at the end of the film and it's connected in a really amazing way. When I say amazing, I mean I am not selling here. I mean amazing the way this came together. Um, we really could not find the song for the end credits. And Jager and I were going back, and it was, it was like I was in a lot of psychic pain trying to manage like 16 different things as usual to complete the film. And it was a last-minute thing that we had to have, and it had to be right because Anya's illustrations, her amazing color illustrations are in the credit sequence. And we had to have something that was at that level, that bar creatively. Couldn't find the song. Polling everybody I knew, music supervisors, local people, KEXP, you name it. I was going everywhere. Could not find it. And then Jager's like, oh, man, remember years ago, like we came across a playlist from um, one of the uh, um, individuals that lost his life that day who was a D-Day Jeremy Martin. I'm like, yeah. And I remembered it because when I read that playlist, I burst into tears because I knew who this person was after reading that list. 
Grateful Dead was part of that. And Jagger pulled a song from that list. And I didn't, I wasn't familiar with the song, but um, I heard it that morning and I was in LA doing some traveling. I was lying on futon, just waking up in the morning and he'd sent me the, the link. I was lying there, I'll never forget it. And I listened to the opening bars of that song. And I'm like, this Ween song, this is it. This is it, we found it. And it, and it was programmed by one of the people who lost their lives that day at the house. That's beautiful. John, it was a pleasure meeting you. Thank you for coming into the bystander today. Go out and see Wallflower. Thanks, man. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Our podcast is brought to you by That's the Sun Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crust that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's the Sun Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292. Order online at thatsthesum.com or download That's the Sun Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant, who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE Master Technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. Thank you.